All right, thank you. I've got my own roadie. <laughs> kid, I kid. Turn to Hebrews chapter number three, if you would. That's where we've been. Uh, we're going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to begin there at verse number uh, seven. Hebrews chapter three, be, uh, beginning in verse number seven. And uh, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible or on your device. And there the Bible says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my work forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Father, thank you for the scripture, and we pray that you'll uh, speak from it by your spirit. God, thank you that you've given us an inspired, timeless word that keeps us uh, in in tune with you, and we pray now that you'll use it, God, to challenge and change us, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've had an experience that's happened frequently enough for me to think of it as a kind of a phenomenon where in conversation uh, with people, they would recount a traumatic life event, and uh, then they would say something like this, I know that God saved me, or I know that God delivered me through it for a reason. And yet, the, it seemed like every time the person was floundering spiritually. Like, I know that God rescued me. I know that God delivered me through this, and yet their life seemed not to be centered and anchored in, in uh, Jesus. And, and, and of course, as I had opportunity, I'd say, well, God's purpose for you is that you receive eternal life as a free gift and that you make Jesus the Lord and the Savior of your life. I mean, that, that is the reason that uh, any of us are, are alive, is to be rescued and to be made worshipers. And I thought also of a conversation that I had with someone who told me, if only I could see miracles like the people in Scripture saw, then my faith would be confirmed. If I could just see the miracles that people in Scripture saw. And I, I thought about that in relation to this passage that we read because what you see here is that they had a very similar kind of experience, the nation of Israel. When we look at this passage, we're seeing uh, uh, the writer go back to like Exodus 17 and explain to us an incident that occurred after the Exodus had happened and how the people of God came to a place where they had been rescued. They had seen the miraculous. While they were in Egypt, they had been slaves for 400 years, and then God raises up Moses, and through him, we, we talked about last week, they 
were uh, liberated from Egyptian captivity through miracles, the plagues of Egypt that the people experienced. Those uh, same people saw God part the Red Sea for them, so they crossed on dry ground. And then in their wilderness experience, they had seen God care for them. And the scripture relates that their shoes never wore out and their clothing never got threadbare. And over and over again, God had provided for them. And yet, they're steeped in unbelief. That's what this whole chapter is about, is in spite of the fact that they had access to deliverance. They floundered spiritually. In spite of the fact that they had repeatedly seen God care for them in miraculous ways, they had that experience, and yet they were characterized by unbelief. And I think that if you summarize this chapter, what it's, or this part of it, it's saying that access to spiritual experience and familiarity with truth only, are only helpful if we follow through in active faith. So uh, an experience, a spiritual experience can be wasted on a person. And it certainly was the case that it was wasted on Israel here. Our experiences, good and bad, may be catalysts to transformation in our life. I think about, in fact, I was talking to my wife last night. Both of us came to faith in Christ in 1987. She had a friend who invited her to church. It turned out that my parents, you know, attended the same church, and we ended up attending the same church and in the same spiritual place. But That is that both of us had come out of broken relationships, and we were at the end of ourselves, And we were tired of being on the carousel that we were on. And for me, it felt like I was in a vortex of despair. 24 years old, that's how I felt. I felt like everything in my life was a mess. And, you know, I had been invited to church over and over again. And finally, I, I knew that there wasn't any hope in what I was doing. But that that situation, the crisis for me, became the catalyst for transformation. It was there in my despair that I found hope through the gospel. And Frankie and I were baptized together as uh, believers at both of us 24 years of age, both of us coming through crisis. And very often it's true in people's life that that's where we encounter God. We reach a, a turning point and the events that have happened lead us to a place where our faith becomes real and it, it becomes powerful and transformational. But the scripture says here there's a terrifying prospect that a person might come to a point of crisis and then go forward in unbelief. They might depart from God rather than being attracted to God. And so we see that in the nation of Israel. And the passage that we're going to look at today shows us the, the, the idea that a person could come to crisis and reject God rather than being drawn to, to God. So when we look at the scripture today, they, people have a privilege. The people of Israel did. And so do we. And that privilege is that we've been uh, given access to truth. And, and our commitment one way or another is what's at issue. And that's what makes it a dangerous privilege is the idea that a person could depart from hope and they could walk away from light and they could choose instead to reject, reject God's grace. So in this patch is the... There's an illustration that's given to us first. The Exodus people of God, number one, 
failed at Massa and Meribah. The actual place name was Rephidim, where they came to. So you can uh, go first, the people of God failed at uh, Manasseh and Meribah, number one. There you go. So the the place name is Rephidim. The, The people are delivered across the Red Sea. The people are provided for and cared for and led by God, a pillar of fire by day, a cloud of... uh, a cloud, a pillar of cloud uh, by day, a pillar of fire by night. They have God's leadership, and they come to a place where they are thirsty. Imagine that. They're in the desert, and they're thirsty. That's what happens. And they begin to murmur and to complain, and not to trust God, even though they have every cause to trust God, because God's cared for them over and over and over again. But they get to this place called Rephidim, and Moses renames it Massa and Meribah. And the reason uh, he calls it that is because the word Massa meant test or provoke. And that's what they did to God. They tested God, and they provoked God there. They, they said to Moses things like this, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in this wilderness? So they're full of irony and sarcasm and, worse, unbelief. And they test God. They put God to the test. So he calls it uh, Meribah or, or Massa. And then Meribah is contend or strive. So that, that's what their hearts were like. Unbelief, arguing with God, not trusting his direction and his care, even though they had every reason to trust in his care. And so he says today, this is actually when... You read this chapter, it's citing Psalm 95. So a lot of times the Bible will italicize the, uh, the, what's set off in print here, my Bible does, to demonstrate that it's quoting the Old Testament. It's quoting Psalm 95 here in this passage that we've read. And it says, today if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. And it keeps repeating that word today. And there are several things I think that are communicated by that. And one is that today is what you have. We have this moment now. God's given this to you. You can't access yesterday except for sometimes in terms of regret, we might say that, or we might say, hey, there were great things that happened, but whatever, you can't go back there. You have now. You don't have the future. And so today communicates the idea that now is what you have. This is the moment that we have to respond to God and to be obedient and and to know him. Now, today, with your current attitude and your current disposition is what you have. And today communicates also to us a sense of urgency. I think in Ephesians the scripture says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The Bible says, Awake. It says, Respond to God now today that we redeem the time because the days that we live in are our evil days. Today urges us toward response and in, in the privilege that we have. If you'll hear his voice, the scripture says. God is speaking, but the question is, are we listening? Are we t- uh, tuned in and, and acutely hearing what God is saying? You, I don't, Lily Tomlin, you'd have to be really old to remember her, 
But she said, why, why is it that when God, uh, when we speak to God, we're said to be praying, but when God speaks to us, we're said to be schizophrenic. But God does speak to us. God speaks through his word. God speaks in community. God speaks in, in our pray, praying, and as we listen, God is speaking. In fact, in the scripture, he said to Israel, then you shall call and the Lord will answer, and as you cry for help, he will say, here I am. The Lord will guide you continually. So the truth is, God does speak. And he says today, if you'll hear my voice, don't harden your heart. We have the opportunity to hear what God is saying. We also have the opportunity to either soften our heart and obey and listen and comply and arrange our life in obedience or to reject what God is saying to us. And there's an intensity in Hebrews where over and over we're going to see warnings that are given to us that say, don't harden your heart. Don't depart from the living God. Because we know that there are circumstances, theirs particularly, were, were such that they easily could have. And so they strive with God, the people of Israel, in the desert experience, the wilderness wanderings. It's a byword, right? When you read the Bible, we know of the wilderness wandering uh, as a byword. And it meant that rather than getting to a destination, which was pretty straightforward even without GPS, you know, it was pretty straightforward. You leave Egypt. They knew where this land was because their ancestors had been there. Abraham had been there. They knew where they were going, but it took them 40 years to go no place. Circles that they, they went in. And so they strive with God. They provoke God. And God eventually says to that generation that nobody who left Egypt who was over 20 years of age could enter the promised land. I thought about the, the math on that. I'm 59. If, if I were in that generation of people, I would have been barely under the age of those that could have gone into Canaan. Unless your name was Caleb and Joshua. They were the only two out of perhaps a million people who were obedient to God. And God gave them uh, permission to. Even Moses and Aaron, we know, failed in the uh, possibility of entering what the scripture describes here as God's rest. His rest, his promised place, their destination. They didn't get there. Somebody posted this this week. I thought it was a great insight into this passage, particularly extraordinary afflictions. This is Matthew Henry. Are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces, or we would say in keeping with uh, you know this message, extraordinary privileges. So sometimes we think, man, my life has become really hard. It must be that God is out to get me. But the scripture is going to show us that, no, sometimes our life gets really hard because God is trying to bring out the best in us. And God is trying to cause us to graduate through tests. You remember in school that you would be tested at times. I've said before the most terrifying uh, words I heard in college were take out a half a sheet of paper. And, and then you're going to be tested on what you know. Well, God is testing us too. And sometimes we're coming up to the same test again and again and again in our life. And guess what? God wants you to pass. He doesn't want you to fail. He wants you to pass. 
But sometimes we're facing the same uh, test again and again and again. So we look at this, uh, these, these people of God, and really what they were experiencing was an incredible privilege. They were called to be the nation through whom God was going to raise up the Messiah, the Savior of all the world. That was their privilege. That was God's destiny for them, but many of them never reached their their destiny. And that's an interesting question. How did a whole generation of people collectively harden their harden their hearts? How did they do that? How was it possible to experience everything they experienced and yet out here harden their heart? Well, the Bible in this passage makes it very clear how they did that. So let's think about that for a moment. How does a whole generation of people harden their heart and respond wrongly to God? Well, the, the first idea is the one we were just talking about, that they responded wrongly to trials. You know, when we're going through ad- adversity, and we do often, right? I mean, uh, broken down vehicles, like my wife's car's been in the shop for two months, uh, while a part that they need to repair it is unavailable because she hit a deer. So you go through times where, of course, that's a very first world problem, right? Other people are suffering far worse than we are. But sometimes our lives feel like, man, I'm just experiencing problem upon problem upon problem. How do we respond to that? Do we grumble and complain and that's what they did? Or do we experience praise in that? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say to you, rejoice. Well, I know that's not our impulse. But if we want to know how we end up with a hardened heart, it's by grumbling and complaining and murmuring through difficulty and not going on to being people of praise and not looking for God's purpose in it. Through short-sightedness, how did their hearts become hard? A whole generation. How did a whole generation of human beings miss out on the opportunity to experience God's best and his rest in the land of Canaan? How did they not move on to promise? Well, they were short-sighted. They, they were seeking immediate gratification. That's what happened at the place that came to be called Meribah and Massa, is that the people were just thirsty. And we can understand how a person in the desert would be thirsty. But God, God has provided for them so frequently in so many different ways that you would think they would have the patience to say, you know, God's probably going to show up here too. God's probably going to come through. He's come through over and over again. But no, that's not what they do. They complain against Moses. They complain against God. In fact, God, uh, Moses fears for his life. He says, these people are going to stone me. And he cries out. And God provides for them. But they had to have what they wanted instantly. Aren't you glad you're not like that? I mean, I know I'm not that way at all. But how, how do we end up with the uh, hardened heart? It's by demanding that God come through for us right then and not having the ability to patiently wait on God. Instant gratification. Well, that kind of characterizes us as a nation. Instant gratification. We don't understand delayed gratification, that if I patiently persevere in the right frame of mind with the right behaviors out here is, is God's best. It's... So we want to take shortcuts, and that's what they did, and the result was a hardened heart. They were remarkably forgetful of past blessings. 
How do you end up with a hardened heart? You forget that God's been faithful here in the past. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. And Psalm 103 lists all God's benefits. And, and so how do I end up with the hardened heart? I forget. I don't obey Psalm 103. I don't re- remember that God's been faithful and that God's cared and that God's come through. They tested God. The only place where uh, Jerome read it earlier is in Malachi where the Bible says, test me now in this and see if I won't pour out a blessing that you can't contain. I'll open the windows. It's the only place in the Bible that the scripture says test God is in the area of your personal generosity as a manager of God's resources. The Bible says in that way God says test me and see if I won't pour out a blessing that you can't contain. But when the Bible here talks about testing negatively, they strained God's mercy. That's what it means to test God. They strained his mercy. They presumed on the grace of God. Rather than recognizing that everything that came to them was a gift, they presumed on God's grace. And the scripture here also says that their failure and what led to them having a hardened heart was they were ignorant of his ways. He says, you don't know my ways. You don't recognize how I work. And part of our maturity as disciples and followers of Christ is learning God's ways, learning who he is through Scripture, learning the pattern of God's behavior in our experiences. That's how we become mature. He says, it's knowing my ways. My ways aren't your ways, God says. If they were, it would all come naturally to us. But often God behaves in ways that are baffling to us. And we have to learn his ways and trust, and trust in, in the Lord. So they were ignorant of his ways. One of the things they forgot about God is that God is fundamentally good. So we know that anything that comes to us from God's hand is good for us. It may not feel good at the time. But ultimately it's good because a fundamental reality about God is God is good. When we forget that, we're in trouble. Sometimes we forget that. We forget God is good. And it, the consequence is bitterness and resentment. Instead of accepting everything, you remember how we keep talking about Job, how Job says God gave, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We forget that that's God's prerogative, that God can give and that God can take away, but fundamentally God is still good. He's benevolent. In him is light and no darkness whatsoever, the Bible says. So he's light. He's, in him is life. And everything about God is good. We, we remember Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. So he's trustworthy and we can trust in him and we can, he'll, he'll lead us and he'll provide for us. And the, way, the pathway to a hardened heart was step by step. They didn't do any of these things. They did the opposite of what led a person to, be, to have a soft uh, heart, a heart that was open to, to God and could be blessed by God. And they couldn't enter his rest. They missed their destination. They floundered in futility. 
They failed to fulfill God's purpose for them. I can't think of anything worse than to live an entire life that God had one intent for and the outcome for me was something completely different than that because my heart was hard and I wasn't in tune with God. But that's what happened to them. They dropped dead in the wilderness. Half a million people or so over a period of 40 years. You can go read through Exodus. You see incident after incident of how the people provoke God. And what does the scripture keep saying here? God was angry with them. That he behaved toward them in, in, in a way that was consistent with their rebellion and disobedience. So that no one under the age of 20 entered the land of promise except for Joshua and Caleb who had, out of everybody that was sent of the 12 spies, they were the only two that came back and gave a good report. And that report reflected the fact that they believed God. They said, yeah, these people are imposing and yes, this task seems formidable, but we've seen what God's done before now. So we trust God. And so consequently of all those people, except the, those under the age of 20, that they alone enter into the land of promise. So first we see the Exodus people of God failed at Massa and Meribah. But secondly in this passage, contemporary people of God, that is the original readers and us, are urged to faithfully persevere. So this is the turning point in uh, verse number 12 where it, it says there, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So we have their example and we may adjust our lives accordingly. That, uh, this whole incident is repeated in 1 Corinthians 10 also. Psalm 78 talks about a place uh, where the, the people turn their back on God. But all of those things are given as examples to us that we would do differently. And so contemporary people of God are urged here to faithfully persevere. We have this example. The phrase in uh, verse number 12 that is in English, departing, is the word that we get the word apostasy from. I'm sure you've heard the word apostasy. And that word depart just comes directly into English that way. An apostate is someone who departs, and a person who leaves behind and renounces Christ. They, they have had all of Christianity that they, they are going to stand. They leave, they depart. That's a huge contemporary concern. Each successive generation we've seen before is less devout than the one that came before it. Each successive generation in America is less devout in terms of participation in public worship than the one that came before it. And so this, when he talks about this idea of departing, of uh, apostatizing, then it's a very relevant current uh, idea. I have a book in my uh, at home actually called The Rise of the Nuns by James Emery White. Not N-U-N-S nuns, but N-O-N-E-S nuns. Nuns. That is uh, when you do sociological studies and you ask people about their religious affiliation they say none. No religious affiliation. And this book chronicles the reality that 
almost a majority of people now, when they're polled, say, I have no religious affiliation. And those people would fall into one of two categories. They would either be people who once came to church and sat in under preaching and were familiar with the realities of community and what it was about and what the Bible meant, or they're people that don't know Moses from Noah from the apostles or an epistle. They, don't, they have no idea. They've never been to church, which increasingly represents a huge swath of the American public. But what, the, what he's addressing here when he says, be careful that you don't depart from the living God, that you don't harden your heart. He's talking about people, and he's going to repeat this again and again. The writer of Hebrews, he's going to continually say to us, there is a danger that we need to be aware of that we might walk away and renounce Christ. We're told in this passage, keep the gospel central. I like how, uh, look at verse 13, what it says there, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sins. Exhort one another. That means urge, implore, encourage. So if I texted you or called you every day, and, and told you, hey, keep being faithful, keep walking with the Lord, the Bible would say, that's not stalking, that's appropriate, right? Urge one another, encourage one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you have a hard heart and stop participating in community with other believers and stop living for God's mission and eventually forget about your allegiance to Christ. So that's what the scripture is saying here, and it it warns us to keep the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and our worship central to our life and our identity. One writer this week as I was studying said, the exhortation to mutual encouragement was wise. In isolation from people, believers each individual among uh, them was more liable to succumb to subtle temptation which pressed in from so many sides. But if they came together regularly for mutual encouragement, the devotion of all would be in less danger of flickering and dying. So it's encouraging us to public worship. And we've said before that in the Bible, when you read the Bible, the word church has no meaning that we can get our brain around except for the connection, the public gathering, the coming together for the purpose of worship and praise and prayer and communion and all the things that we do in the body of a local church. So the Bible says keep doing that. Don't neglect to do it, as we'll continue to see. But we need each other. We need the relationships that God's given us as, the, as we each are in, inhabited by the Holy Spirit. He's come to live in us and made us his own. And so we, we, we're told here, don't, you know, don't quit encouraging each other toward that. So we encourage each other to faithfulness. That, that's why in church, really, we have elders here, me and Varney and Jonathan and Scott Carpenter and Alvin. And all of our role is member care, to love and pray for and encourage faithfulness in the lives of the congregation. But 
we have that responsibility among each other and, and Cody and uh, as a leader. Each person that leads, small group leaders, you know what should happen in those places when you meet for Bible study, the women's Bible studies that meet the men that, you know, uh, we do, is that there's mutual encouragement to faithfulness. That's what we're trying to do. And in the congregation, there is supposed to be this sense that we belong to each other, that we care for each other, that we're nurturing faith and, and faithfulness in each other. And so that's a part of what it means to be in a congregation, to be part of a congregational life. John MacArthur wrote, The greatest proof of salvation is continuance in the Christian life. First John two nineteen says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not of us, which is a lot. But what he, he is saying is that there are going to be people who eventually renounce Christ and they turn away from spiritual community. And he says it's an evidence that they didn't really know him. Now, this isn't talking about somebody that went out from here and transferred their membership and continued to be a worshiper, or they moved away and they found another church to be a part of. It's saying that there are times in people's lives where they reach this dangerous intersection and they turn away from Christ and renounce their allegiance to him altogether. And again, that's the warning here. There's also comfort to me in, in what we keep learning about this because here's what I think. I think in the call to live a Christ-centered life that the greatest reality for us is the one who has us will hold us. If he has us, if we really belong to Christ, there's a great hymn. I, I was talking to Cody this week. I'm like, I love to sing this hymn. He will hold us fast. It's by uh, the Gettys. And this is part of what it says. Because this is how we feel, I think, sometimes. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And thank God that's what he does. He holds us. He, he says that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And so we find that encouragement as well, that if we belong to him, that there's a power at work in our life that is transcendent and transformational. But the scripture here is warning us against the deceitfulness of sin. And rebellion is when we grow to think that we know better than God knows. It's omitting God and choosing a self-directed life. The scripture says, who was it? It In the closing verses of this chapter, it, it asks, you know, kind of a rhetorical, there's a rhetorical pattern where it says that uh, who was it that rebelled? Was it not all who came out of me, uh, Egypt under Moses? So it says there that all the people who left Egypt were hardened. And I think about that, that being in the majority is no assurance that we're in the right. If you turn that out and you look at the culture, there's a culture of people really who have turned away from participation in worship and who have renounced Christ. Well, uh, it's a dangerous thing to think that just because all of these people think that way, they must be right. Maybe we should go that way too. The Bible says no. Being in the majority, all, the majority of people that left Egypt didn't go into the land of, of promise because they departed from the truth of God. I've been reading through Jeremiah 
in the uh, past week, and it's uh, fascinating how over and over again God keeps calling the people of Israel to one single thing, just one thing, and that's absolute obedience to him. The reason that they were sent into exile, the reason that they, the people, ne- God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king, to come and uh, take and burn the walls of the city and, and to deport the people back to Babylon all came down to one single issue that was their disobedience God had made it plain what it meant to be in relationship with him and follow him and they keep declining to follow him it's and so rebellion is what this passage talks about and we're called to a life of consistent repentance and obedience. I don't know any perfect people. I've said that over and over again. Certainly I'm not one. I don't represent myself to, uh, to be perfect. However, I believe that what it means to be a follower of Christ is that he calls us to a life of consistent repentance and obedience. It's, he saves us by grace. We're, we're saved by grace and, and not of works of righteousness that we've done, certainly but by the favor and kindness that comes because Christ died in our our place and was raised from the dead. And people that put their confidence in Jesus' sacrifice alone are the ones who are saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And after that, we're called to a life of repentance and obedience, to be penitent people. That's what God calls us to, Not, not perfect because we never will be. But Jesus asked, Someone, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? And in, in Jeremiah, there's an illustration of a family that uh, God tells him to go and find the Rechabites. And he says, bring them into an ante room in the temple and offer them wine. And uh, so Jeremiah often illustrates things that God has asked him to do in dramatic fashion. And he goes and finds these people, and he brings them into this ante room, and he provides for them wine, and he says, take this and drink it. And they say, nope, because our forefather, Jonadab, said that we should never drink wine, and we should always live in tents, and we, should, we shouldn't ever live in the city. And... The marvel in that is that these people were obeying their forefather Jonadab, not God necessarily, but their forefather had told them that. And God says, do you see what these people are doing? They're obeying their forefather, and you're not obeying me, God who created everything. And so he he brings that illustration in to say, we can't divorce a profession of faith from a life of faithfulness. When God uh, puts on us this call to be his people, thank God it's by grace, but he calls us to a lifestyle of obedience and faithfulness. And we're not talking about uh, rigid moralism, but about authentic, prevailing, transforming belief. To balance this, there's a story that Jesus... uh, encountered a father who had a child who was seized by an evil spirit. And you remember that the man cries out to Jesus and he says, Have mercy on us and help us if you can. And Jesus answered, If I can. He says, Nothing is is, uh, impossible or anything is possible to a person who believes. You remember what the father says? He says, I do believe what? Help my unbelief. 
Help my unbelief. Did Jesus say, no, not, not unless you've got it all completely ironed out? And No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus healed his son. Because when he finds the germ of faith, the seed of faith in a person, that's what he's looking for. And the issue with these people is that they were characterized by unbelief. They rejected God. They walked away from God. They didn't know his ways. They thought he was a genie or something like that who granted them wishes. God says, no, that's not who I am. I am the God of the universe. I'm the creator of everything. I'm deserving of worship. One of the clear ways this passage is admonishing us is to continue to participate in worshiping community as evidence of our faith. That's what it's asking us or commanding us really to do. It also challenges us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. That's how 2 Corinthians closes. It says examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or it says if you pass the test, here's how you know that you passed it. Is Christ in you? If Christ is in you, then you pass the test. Well, the question then would be, how do I know if Christ is in me? When we surrender to him, he says in the Gospel of John, he will come to us and make his home in us. He'll indwell you. That's the new birth. Regeneration is when God takes that dead person, in their, dead in their sins and trespasses, and he makes them alive to him in a way that's unique that they never were before. And I don't think that happens without you knowing it. I think when it happens, you'll have full knowledge that it has happened to you. It sounds subjective, but it's not because it eventuates in things like an unusual love for people. How do I know Christ came to take up his home in me? He gives me the supernatural capacity to love people that I would have cared less about before. That's one of the ways that we know. He gives me a desire for holiness. He gives me awareness when my life is departing from holiness. Because that spirit that lives inside of you, if he does, is a holy spirit. He puts a new song in our mouth. The scripture says, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear. He he starts, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? A new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. The scripture says, so he is in the business of renewing and making us different in tangible ways. We'll be characterized by obedience to God. may not always be clear what to do. I don't always know what to do. Some, we were talking about that earlier in little, little simple things. I don't always know what to do. But I do know what to do, and that is seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And when we commit to do that, he promises that he'll lead us. And we'll not just say Jesus is Lord, but endeavor to make it true again and again over every facet of our life. That's how we know that we've uh, passed from death to life, is that Jesus said, why are you saying Lord, Lord, but you're not making any effort to recognize me and Lord in the tiny details of your life? No, a person that has come to know him is going to constantly adjust their life to him as Lord, as Master, because that it's an aspect of who he is. He's Savior, Redeemer, but he's also Lord and he's Master. So we're privileged with clear access to truth about God. But the question for us is, has it transformed us into faithful followers of Christ? I want to pray for us. We'll have a time of commitment now. And it may be that there's a way that you need to respond this morning.
And uh, this is a church that uh, accepts people by profession of faith. It may be that you've never professed faith in Christ and followed him in baptism, then we would encourage you to do that as a, a very beginning step of obedience, to say yes to the offer of forgiveness of sins that comes to us through Christ. Or it may, it may be that you want to be a part of this fellowship, and we would encourage you to take the steps involved for membership. And to, it's a serious uh, action in uh, committing ourselves to spiritual community and to be under the leadership and authority of the leaders that God gives to a local church. And it, there may be some other thing that God is speaking, but this is an opportunity for response and commitment and repentance. And I want to pray for us and Cody as you guys come. Father, we're so grateful for the scripture and sometimes it hits us so hard. And we thank you that you show us that in your word there's the possibility of us hardening our hearts and us missing what what you wanted for our life. And to think that we could have an entire life that completely missed your purpose uh, would be the hugest, most eternal regret. So I pray for us that you'll show us how to keep walking in light. And God forgive us, I would say all of us would probably acknowledge that even in this week or maybe even this day, there have been ways that we've uh, failed to, to follow through in a way that's appropriate to your you being Lord of our life. So cleanse and help us and, and strengthen us in our devotion to you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.